Hi, and welcome to episode five of Ward's Auto Podcast. My name is David Kiley. I am senior editor at Ward's Auto. I hope you've been with us from the start, but if you're just joining us, I encourage you to subscribe and listen to our first four episodes. They can be found on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, etc. We are on a six-episode maiden voyage of this podcast, discussing aspects of the transition the industry is going through from the decades focused on the internal combustion engine to the era of electrification. Every automaker is transitioning at a different pace with slightly different strategies. For now, the industry is primarily focused on battery electric vehicles. Regulators and policymakers in Washington, California, the European Union, and even China are rushing to expand and accelerate their electrified lineups. Not to be forgotten is a more fledgling expansion of hydrogen fuel cells. But as expert engineers have told me for the last year or so, as we transition, it is probably best to think about batteries as a good substitute for gasoline, internal combustion engines, while hydrogen fuel cells are probably best applied as a replacement for diesel engines, as in semi-trucks, stationary power, agricultural and mining vehicles, and trucks that travel between ports and railheads to distribution centers. The transition ain't easy. It is fraught with disruption and many differences of opinion as to how much these changes will actually mitigate CO2 emissions and climate change. On top of that, we don't really have a mature infrastructure to recharge electric vehicles or certainly refuel hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Now, I'm not here to represent the position that what we're doing isn't going to have any impact because the train has left the station. Regulators and policymakers have spoken. In one way or another, we are headed to 50% battery electric vehicle sales by the middle of the next decade, as well as the replacement of a lot of diesel vehicles with hydrogen fuel cells. That's where the EPA is headed with its current proposed rules, as well as the California Air Resources Board. Now, it's worth pointing out that Alliance for Automotive Innovation CEO John Bozella said in a recent blog post that, quote, the EPA should ease up and reassess this rule before it helps cement China's place in the U.S. auto market, unquote. He predicts that if the EPA regulations are too tough, China will gain a stronger foothold in America's electric vehicle battery supply chain and eventually our automotive market. Now, what he's referring to is the fact that China is ahead of us on lithium mining processing and battery manufacture. The EPA proposed last April cutting vehicle emissions by 56% over 2026 levels. The EPA estimates would result in 60% of new vehicles by 2030 being electric and 67% by 2032. Yes, that's ambitious. Now, I'm not saying after 40 years of covering this auto industry, the EPA, NHTSA, etc., 
that Bozell is wrong for challenging the wisdom of the proposed rule. But what I expect to happen is that the proposed rule will become final with some tweaks, and as we get closer to 2030, President Biden's successor, whatever party they're in, will likely work out a deal for an extension. There is precedent for cracking the whip on the industry to push it and then pulling up on the reins a bit to give the industry an extension. Well, if we're talking, say, in terms of our college experience, an extension on the senior project. And that's what's been happening since our last episode. Now, let's get to a couple of topics that are timely and connected. When we come back, I'll be talking with Ward's Intelligence's Sustainability Chief Analyst Christy Schweinberg about infrastructure, and especially the moves by Ford and General Motors, Rivian, as well as some other automakers considering having cut deals with Tesla to be able to use the Tesla's network, including their fast chargers, for their own vehicles. Plus, charging networks like ChargePoint and now the Society for Automotive Engineers is adopting Tesla's NACS plug standard. That's right, folks. Elon Musk has won the battle over charging standards. More on that when we're back. After we talk to Christy, we'll spend some time with Chevy Silverado EV Chief Engineer Nicole Kratz, talking about the new Chevy Silverado EV work truck which I had a chance to drive and poke around last week. The Wards Auto Podcast is brought to you in part by Wards Events. Wards Auto is proud to bring you a series of auto tech events throughout the year and throughout the world. Auto Tech Detroit 2023 was held in Novi, Michigan this June, where more than 2,500 industry peers and innovators came together to share content and insights about electrification, connected car, autonomous driving, and more. And it's where Wards Auto and parent company Informa presented the 10 Best Interiors and UX Awards, as well as the Informa Tech Awards. Check out the agenda for Auto Tech Europe this November to be held in Germany, and Auto Tech Electrification to be held in Michigan this October. At Wards, we're all about the future and guiding our readers and listeners to what's next. Go to wardsauto.informa.com. So, Christy, thank you for uh, joining us today to talk about infrastructure, which is something that I know you have your fingers on the pulse of. We've seen a lot of new action in the infrastructure world in the last couple of weeks as several automakers have uh, decided to partner with Tesla and to make it so that their customers can use Tesla chargers. Ford, GM, Rivian, uh, Stellantis, and Hyundai have said that they are looking at this now and and considering the same move. What do you make of it? Um, Tesla has the best most reliable, most available charging network in the United States. So I think it makes a lot of sense that these other brands of vehicles, you know, especially seeing some of the deficiencies with the non-Tesla networks, uh, these other automakers want to take advantage of that reliability and availability for their customers. So I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it's a big, a big boon for people driving um, EVs from the legacy automakers that, now, that they now can charge as easily 
and at as many locations as Tesla has, or well, not every location that Tesla has will be will be maybe open to them. We'll see. We'll see what the future holds. Can you put your finger on, have you been able to put your finger on what it is that makes the Tesla charging network better and more reliable than the other efforts that are out there from ChargePoint and EVgo, et cetera? Sure. Well, it helps hugely that Tesla is vertically integrated. So the superchargers were developed for Teslas by Tesla and Tesla vehicles charge best, I think we could say, on the superchargers. Um, with a legacy automaker, they're using, you know, different software and and with different generations of EVs. For instance, you think of the Chevy Bolt versus the new GM Ultium uh, EVs like the Cadillac Lyric and the GMC Hummer. You know, there's there's a myriad of software. The charge ports are in different locations. So these charging networks, you know, they have to be on top of that. Their software has to communicate with the software on the vehicle there has to be this digital handshake. If you ever, you know, talk to anybody about charging infrastructure, they talk about the digital handshake where the charger and the and the vehicle have this sort of communion and and you know talk to each other and and yeah, they handshake and everything can begin. So um, that makes it difficult. Also, um, you know, the non-Tesla chargers have screens, they have credit card readers. Um, those are things that can fail and can you know make the charger go down it's it's just a lot more complicated for those non-tesla networks than it is for tesla and also i think you could certainly say um the cord set on the tesla chargers on superchargers lighter it's a shorter cord it's a lighter uh plug than what is on the dc fast chargers from the non-tesla networks so those are bigger they're bulkier they're harder to maneuver and i think you know if you're looking um at buying an EV, you have to sort of keep in mind just how good the Tesla supercharger, how many, how many positives there are with the Tesla supercharger versus some of the some of the other charging networks, uh, their, their chargers. Well, you mentioned one of the things which, as I'm reading this last week or two, is actually maybe a, a not a positive for the non-Tesla automakers that are signing up for Tesla chargers, and that is the length of the cord. Because the Tesla chargers are optimized and the length of the cable are optimized for where the Tesla charging port is. Correct. And, and so we're seeing people in the consumers and also people in the media snapping pictures of, of their vehicle straddling like two or three right. uh, <laughs> parking places. Yeah. Which, now, how do you think? that particular issue is going to shake out. Do you think Tesla will start retrofitting with longer cables? They could, and I don't think that'd be a huge expense. But again, part one of the, the highlights of the Tesla supercharger experience is that that cable is so light and you make it longer, it's going to make it heavier. But certainly they could do that. They could reconfigure the station design. So you've got some pull-through stations versus your parking spots that are perpendicular to the line of, of Tesla chargers. Um, I don't think it's a big insurmountable issue, but certainly I've seen what you see. I, I was just the other day watching a um, great YouTube piece from a state of charge channel and he had a Ford F-150 Lightning and he had taken it to this, um, one of the, some of the Tesla charger, uh, supercharger locations now have the magic dock adapter built in. And uh, he was 
barely able to get the truck close enough. And it was still, the, the cord was stretched pretty tight. And, you know, that's not good for the, for the durability of that cord to be stretched so tight. But he needed a charge and, and he was able to get it, fortunately. Well, I'm going to take a flyer and say that the, probably the cheapest uh, and easiest, although, you know, we, what we think is easy, logistically, sometimes not so much, um, would be to start swapping cords out, you know, longer cords. Right. Um, and, and uh, yeah. Yeah, you might see, you know, say a Tesla uh, supercharger station has, you know, 10 stalls and then maybe half of them will have longer cords for the for the non-Tesla um, customer. But it's an issue, but I don't think it's going to be a huge yeah, expense if they've got to if they've got to put in some longer cords. So wh- how do you view the fact or do, do you think that the and also the charging network, some of the charging networks are also flipping over to uh, the Tesla standard. So it feels to me, unless I'm missing something. It feels to me like uh, the Tesla's Betamax s- solution for charging is is going to carry the day. Is that is that how you see it? Um, TBD. I mean, it certainly you know makes sense given what I said earlier about the availability and the reliability of the supercharger network. But you have to think, you know, of what could happen in the future. You know, is it is a non-Tesla going to have to pay double per kilowatt hour? versus a Tesla, um, you know, what, what, what's going to happen down the road after these agreements? Because I think there's a contract with a start date start date and an end date for this partnership. Mm-hmm. What happens when those contracts expire and need to be renegotiated? You know, you, you, you'll become dependent. I mean, te- Tesla could, you know, monopolize the public charging business potentially, you know, if, if it, so I think, I can't remember if it was GM or Ford has said they're going to do away with the CCS adapter on the vehicle. I predict that they'll change their mind on that because I do think you want to give people choices, uh, especially at this relatively early stage. Of totally. The- I'll tell you one thing I think about because of my marketing background is that it's got to be galling to Ford and GM and Hyundai and particularly the Germans, although the Germans haven't um, signed up yet to use Tesla chargers is that, you know, I feel like Musk is gloating right now over the fact that his his standard, you know, is, is the one that works and people are now now the legacy automakers are flocking to. But if I'm Ford, like it galls me to to send my customer to the charging station of a branded competitor. Yeah, you know, again, I think, you know, every automaker has seen what we see in terms of the negative experiences that some people are having at the non-Tesla chargers. You know, they tend to go down a fair bit more or they're slower than the advertised, you know, charging speed. Even if your battery is low, uh, you might not be pulling down anywhere near what the charging, you know, the advertised speed is. So at a certain point, I think they all had to say, you know, we got to go with the most reliable available charging network we we got to give our customers access to this because if we don't it could slow down adoption you know there i mean automakers are spending hundreds of millions billions of dollars on electrification and if these vehicles don't sell they're in trouble so you've you've got to make active as possible and part of that is making the the charging experience uh, seamless i feel a lot of vindication because before i came to wards i was in the ford ecosystem working with them and around the time of the Mach-E launch 
I had occasion to be shooting a video with Jim Farley. And I said to him, well, we had some downtime. And I said, not for nothing, Jim, but I think you'd be, you, you wouldn't be unwise to allocate a couple of hundred million dollars maybe to some startups or something who, that, that have better solutions for either the, the, the charging infrastructure or maintaining the charging infrastructure. And he told me then that he thought, well, he said, I think that's an industry, uh, you know, challenge that, you know, we'll work through with our industry, you know, our, our industry groups because it affects all of us. And I said to him, I said, at this rate, you're all going to be uh, following Tesla. And, yeah. he, and he said, no, no, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> How things change. You know, a, a frequent comment you would hear over the years that I would hear when interviewing automotive executives about, you know, investing in charging networks, which some some of them have done, um, you know, it, it's happened, but yeah. they used against it because they would say, oh, you know, well, the, the we never invested in gas stations or whatever, but it was a different world back then. You know, you had a horse and buggy versus an internal combustion engine vehicle. Today, you've got an internal combustion engine vehicle versus a battery electric vehicle, and there's a lot of people that would just... You know, the, the IC vehicle has been pretty good for a lot of people, and they'd rather just stick with that. You've, you've got to, you know, again, you've got to make charging, I think, as easy and hassle-free as possible. Hey, Christy, thanks so much for your time today. This infrastructure scenario is becoming almost as interesting as the electric vehicle sort of scene it, itself, which I, I think is uh, was probably inevitable. Um, but still, it's an interesting turn of events to see Tesla, although we, I think we're used to seeing Elon Musk gloat about uh, one thing or another at this point. <laughs> yeah, certainly all fast. Um, I just want to say personally, I've had really good knock on wood charging experiences this year. Um, yeah. I've been able to charge every single time I've gone to a, I've primarily utilized um, EVgo chargers, public chargers um, at a mm -hmm. local supermarket. Good. It's been good. I haven't had to wait. I think once I had to change locations, pick a different charger. But, um, you know, I know there are a lot of negative stories out there. I've certainly had issues in the past with other chargers. And uh, in fact, I've had issues with another EVgo location. But um, this year it's been pretty good. So I think these these networks are, you know, they're doing the best they can. And they're really they're seeing this criticism and they're trying to to make things right. It's growing pains. And I frankly, I did not know or appreciate until in the last year how many how difficult it is to build out these networks how many things get in the way of uh, and then the maintenance issues i mean the digital handshake that you spoke about is one thing but the myriad of of things that can go wrong with these chargers um is is astonishing and i just i didn't understand probably two years ago just how much can go wrong with that so it's it's just it's a much bigger challenge than i imagine for sure for sure i, I think we're gonna get the industry is gonna get better is getting better and but yeah for now tesla is sort of the king of, the, of public charge <laughs> um and yeah it's not a surprise to see these these other automakers uh getting on board with uh their charging standard you have to have to be careful. Elon Musk may quote you in his next tweet. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks again, Christy. Appreciate your insights as always.
The Wards Autos Podcast is brought to you by Wards Intelligence. Wards Intelligence provides trusted data, expert insight, and reliable forecasts into the automotive and auto tech industries. Renowned for their extensive current and historical data sets, pragmatic perspective, and industry-embedded analysts, it's easy to see why over 90% of their subscribers renew each year. To learn more about their market-leading automotive intelligence capabilities, head over to wardsintelligence.informa.com. So I'm here at a Chevy Business Review, and uh, we're looking at the Silverado work truck. And I'm here with uh, with the wind blowing, which is okay because it <laughs> it gives uh, it'll give our listeners a little uh, actuality what it's like to be a reporter out here in the in the field. I'm with Nicole Kratz, who's the chief engineer yeah. on the uh, on the work truck. Congratulations on a great product, Nicole. Thank you. We are really excited to be able to show it off and let you drive it and experience everything we've been talking about the last year. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, just as an engineer, you've worked on multiple uh, projects and you've seen and been a part of the electrification of the industry. Um, I'm a little surprised on one hand that that the full-size pickup truck is kind of very much at the the sharp end of the spear here as far as the transformation, which is what we've been talking about in this podcast series. So on one hand, I'm like, the the vehicle I would have thought least, um, (laughs) you you know, appropriate for electrification, the customer base who would be the least likely to want to adopt electrification early. Um, But on the other hand, we know there's a lot of profit built in to full-size pickup trucks. And so that seems to me to have trumped the whatever logic or because you've got a lot of profit margin in there to, to be able to hide some of the costs of electrification. What's your thoughts about when you were put on this project? Whew, there's a lot there. Okay, so um, first of all, I came from being a full-size truck internal combustion pickup truck driver, gas and diesel engines. And so I understand the skepticism and I understand the questioning of could this really do what I need it to do? Is this really going to be a full-size truck? Can I really tow my boat? Can I tow my snowmobiles? Can I put, you know, a thousand pounds of, uh, of wood chips in the back of the truck bed and still, you know, spend my time doing it. I think that um, the industry itself is growing in full-size trucks. We just talked about that. People like the versatility of full-size trucks. And um, the fact of the matter is that if you put an electrified platform in it, you give them so much more opportunity to use more pickup truck-like features. And so what what people have to get over in their mind and in their, in their headspace is, um, are you giving anything up? There's a lot of misconceptions that it's not structurally sound, it's not rigid, it's not durable, it's not that, you know, full-size truck, but it is. And it's just a matter of time. Now, I'll tell you that I think the customer base is 50-50. It might not be 50%, so don't quote me on that. But I think that there's a lot of new adopters that don't want small cars, that want electrification. They want to feel um, good about using electrified vehicles, that want more versatility and are going into that pickup truck segment. The um, Those drivers, though, have come from cars or let's just say small SUVs. And so the pain points of steering circles, being able to turn into tight spots, having that 
ride that's really rough as a traditional um, internal combustion pickup truck might have. This gives them the opportunity to understand that it's a refined, planted drive. I mean, you can talk to your um, mm-hmm. listeners about that. It's it's a strong and capable truck, and um, it's it's absolutely a full size truck. Um, then you have, of course, as I've been talking to a lot of people, you have full-size truck owners that are, their interest is peaked. And then you have first-size truck owners that say never. And I happen to have one of those in my family. (laughs) Um, I took him for a ride and he was absolutely at the end of the ride, like, okay, I could do this. So I think this fleet first work truck that we're doing is really important for a couple of reasons. Fleets are our toughest users. And so they're showing the public that they're capable of going to utilities to do work. They're capable of being um, beaten up a little bit on the roads, you know, by these fleet truck drivers that are really using their trucks for a lot of different things. And so it's important that we show that capability and then make it a real um, opportunity by having people get in them, recognize what it is, and just kind of like you got to see it to feel it. So fleet customers are an interesting audience because you know you've got these these companies that have multiple trucks they're construction workers they're you know they're all kinds mm-hmm. of you know what i call sort of the brawn workers right yeah and but at the same time if you have a fleet of dozens of trucks one of the things if you're a business that you're always looking at is how do i optimize my uptime how do i make my fleet work as efficiently as possible. And so there are opportunities for all of that by, uh, you, you know, managing your fleet. Maybe you do need some some ice trucks in yep. there, but, but there's a lot of analytic tools that will help them say, well, if I have of my 50 trucks, I can get by with like 15 ice trucks and the rest electric, and this is what it's going to save me over time and so you have that almost dispassionate unemotional analysis of the market yeah i mean they're really trying to also figure out what they want to do to your point so when we talk to the fleet customers about what truck we could build for them we ask them what are your range um, targets what you know would offboard power this 10.2 kilowatts that we have would this interest you and and the more we talk to them the more they basically said to us we want everything because we think that we're going to change the way that we do business. Um, we could bring this one or two electric pickup trucks with this 400-mile range to our job site. We could power everything that we need. We can um, have lower-range trucks, perhaps ice trucks in our fleets that are, that are doing the kind of like driving around and doing some stuff. And at the same time, this would be our home base rather than having other things come in, rather than bring generators in, rather than being alternate you know, sources of power in. And so um, I don't think they even know the answer yet, but I think they're very, very interested and focused. And obviously with the reservations that we have from our fleet customers being sold out for our first year, and frankly, we've got orders going into the next year, that I think that they know this is something that they need to use to change the business. I think they have um, sustainability goals just like we do about wanting to be more efficient, being greener. And and I think that um, they're going to figure this out and we're going to have that journey with them. And I think they know that we're really partnering with them to make sure that, that we can offer them everything that they uh, desire. So we're within just a couple of weeks of GM's announcement that it's going to cut this deal with Tesla to be able to use their uh, charging network 
Can you talk a little bit about what that means for GM's EV program and kind of from an engineering standpoint, how this is going to play out over the next couple of years? I think, first of all, what's important about this is um, opportunities. So customers need to find the infrastructure that they need when they need it. Having the 450 miles of range in our Silverado EV makes finding a charger um, less, right? You don't need to go as, uh, you can go further and not have to go find a charging network. But when you do need one, certainly the Tesla supercharger network is an opportunity to allow less um pain point around finding chargers and are they going to work? And we know that's a really great infrastructure. We also have though EVgo uh, charging network. Um, we know there are other charging networks out there. And so what's really important about this announcement is not only the infrastructure that we're going to get from using the supercharger network, but also the NACS plug and its efficiencies. And so what you'll see over the next six months to a year is um, many charging stations changing over to these plugs, having adapters available for our electric pickup trucks, our electric vehicles, so that you can use um, an NACS plug. And the efficiency is what really helps us with being able to use not just the supercharger network, but also, um, you know, 350 kilowatts of DC fast charge. It's still a thing, and the supercharger network isn't doing that. And so we still have adapters to be able to go in and go to a 350 kilowatt um, fast charging, you know, EVgo charge station. And so you'll see all of this infrastructure come together and the only, there is no downside. Everything is on the upside for the customers because now they're going to have way larger of a network of chargers. And with the Silverado EV, they have 800 volt charging with 350 kilowatt DC fast chargers so they can open themselves up to all types of charging networks. And it really just takes the pain out of having to charge. But of course, I have to say it, 450 miles means less time that you're going to take to try to find those chargers because you're not going to need them most of the time. Yeah, fleet fleet trucks are not often going to do 400 miles in a day. Correct. But it's a nice cushion to, to know that you have that. I think there's a couple of things. Number one is um, in any condition. So 450 miles is unladen. And so if they've got payload, if they've got towing, if they've got trailers, um, that matters. So they'll still have good range to get them to their destination and back. Um, we know that temperature, altitude, things like that still affect EV range. And so having that further range than anyone else means you'll have more opportunities to get back without needing to charge. And then the last thing, of course, is just around the fact that the fleet customers want to use that offboard power. And so, again, they're trying to figure out, we told them it would be 400 miles, we got 450, no apologies, right? You're welcome. Um, and they're able to use their batteries, not just for getting themselves from A to B or, or throughout their whole steps, but also just being able to use that offboard power to power all of their tools and equipment. You know, I know this is a stupid reason to want a truck, but... but ever <laughs> There's never a stupid reason <laughs> to want a truck. But ever since, you know, th this became a thing with the, the outboard power and not needing a... a a uh, offboard, uh, you know, gasoline generator. I keep wanting to like buy a piece of property up north and buy one of these Amazon, you know, small houses and and take a truck to a job site and just just live off the energy of the truck and you build build the thing over the course of a week. Yeah. I, I never really wanted to do that before the truck became available. Right. <laughs> um, one last. So on the infrastructure. So you know that Tesla eventually will come out with a, 
battery truck. Um, and I sense from talking, <laughs> exactly. I sense from talking to you that, that you have a lot of pride in, in Chevy and GM and, and all of that. Does it bug you at all to kind of see a competitor, you know, basically get the infrastructure standard and you have to partner with the, with a competitor now for, for the charging network? No, 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 that doesn't bug me. I mean, the bottom line is that, um, we're not, I, I don't have any ego. Like I don't have a big ego problem, right? If somebody makes something better, then that's great. We're going to go along for the ride and say, hey, we want to partner up because this is better for our customer. We're constantly looking out for our customer. This is not a thing where, oh, Tesla's beat us and now we're all going to be upset because we're going to use their charger plugs. That's not it at all. Our customers need real solutions. And if this helps our customers, I'm all in. I also know that this truck is amazing. It looks great. It looks like a pickup truck. Yeah. <laughs> it is amazingly efficient. It's offering everything that any pickup truck driver would want. Mm -hmm. And so I feel really confident that we're going to get a ton of sales out of our Chevrolet Silverado EV. And having a partnership with Tesla over the charger network and the charge plugs is just icing on the cake for that. So it's not a it's not a issue. Well, I just drove it for about 15 minutes, which is not a long shakedown, but yeah. I can tell you uh, it's it's pretty impressive. And and also one of the things that's 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 impressive is the maneuverability and and the visibility issues yeah. that are so much better with this ground up design is not a converted ice architecture. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about why I'm. I was so much happier with, with the visibility. Yeah. Well, first of all, my team is totally obsessed with every little detail of the truck. So the fact that you picked up these little things is awesome mm -hmm. because we do that every day. But it's very rare in a chief engineer's career where we can ever work on an all-new architecture and start it and, and ride it from start to finish. I was there at its conception, and I'm here watching it go down the line, which is an awesome opportunity. Um, we've gone into every part of the truck, and because we don't have to carry any of the burden of the internal combustion components, we were able to completely reconfigure it. And not just to put a huge battery underneath it that can get 450 miles. That's not actually what the goal is. I mean, the goal is over 400 miles for sure. But the goal is also to give the customer every opportunity back that an EV can have. And so the frunk space, the turn circle, because the, the structure can be narrower because we're not putting a big engine inside under the hood. It can be narrower, which gives you more geometry for your wheels to turn. So we've got a better steer um, circle. The engine isn't tall in there. The motors are really short. And so you can bring the cowl down, you can get that hood down and you can have great forward visibility. The, um, the IP is moved forward and it gives us the <laughs> capability, frankly, to make a really large cabin that for our fleet customers on the work truck are totally looking at that backseat as an opportunity for locked storage, weatherproof. And for our retail customers, I mean, you can put a six foot person behind a six foot person driving and be totally comfortable and feel like a great um, drive. And then the last thing is not only do we do all that, reconfiguring it, it's got a five foot 11 bed, which is the longest bed in the EV pickup segment. So again, being able to do all of this stuff has allowed us with a ground up new architecture to just obsessively design every nook and cranny of that pickup truck to be able to really say, this is an all new architecture, no excuses. People are going to love it. And um, it is awesome. And that's a wrap on episode five of the Ward's Auto Podcast. 
Thanks to Christy Schweinberg from Ward's Intelligence and Nicole Kratz from General Motors and the Chevrolet division. You can listen to us right off the Ward's Auto website when you see the articles that support each episode, or you can subscribe to us on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, and more. Till next time, I'm David Kiley, Senior Editor of Ward's Autos.